0: Hello and welcome to Design Life with Price and Myers. My name is Chris Moore, and I'm joined today by Ben Gollum and Charlotte Galvin, and we're going to be talking about measuring embodied carbon and developing useful targets. This episode is called Counting Down. Welcome to you, Ben and Charlotte. Hello. Hi, good morning. Look, we'll kick this one off. I think some of our audience will know this subject reasonably well and some will know it less well, I imagine. So if we could very briefly just sort of explain what embodied carbon is and how we calculate it, Ben.
1: Yes. So embodied carbon is essentially a name given to the carbon emissions. So mostly carbon dioxide and other equivalent gases that are created during the production of materials our buildings so we all know that our buildings use huge amounts of steel and concrete and other materials and these come with a high cost in terms of environmental emissions Um, traditionally we've always thought about emissions from buildings as the operational side so the energy use lighting heating etc whereas over the last few years we've become a lot more conscious of the huge amount of emissions that come from the materials we use and as we've kind of gone through the decades of designing buildings in different ways. We've gone from low carbon materials, such as masonry and timber, but producing buildings with really high operational emissions, really leaky and efficient buildings. We've come really far in terms of the operational side. We've got buildings that are significantly more efficient than we used to have, but we're using steel and concrete a lot more essentially to create them. So we're kind of making the problem a lot more acute whilst reducing the emissions from a building over its lifespan were having huge peaks at the construction phase. Um, so the last few years, we've um, become much better at actually assessing this, and we now do embodied carbon calculations on almost all of our projects. Um, well, there's standard methods for doing this, we use general guidance that everyone in the industry uses, so everything should align. Um, and we do this essentially on all projects at every design stage. Or at least we're meant to. Charlotte, um, how does this work in
0: practice and what impact does it have on your day-to-day design work?
2: We try and start every conversation with sustainability. It's a pretty dominant focus in what we're trying to do. And it's something we've been doing, well, we've always been doing at Price and Myers. We're always trying to make our designs more efficient. And actually, with efficiency comes you know, lots of benefits in terms of the lowering the embodied carbon. It's about reducing the amount of materials that we're using. More recently, we've found that people are becoming more interested. And as Ben says, we're starting to get more engaged with embodied carbon. So we're seeing people trying to understand it a bit better. So what we're trying to do on a day-to-day basis, and when we're looking at options, we're putting things into ways that people can quantify and understand easily. So that might be rather than giving an embodied carbon for a steel beam, we might give it as a tonnage. They're both very closely related because the more material you use, the higher the embodied carbon. But it's about trying to give that and present that in a way that everybody can understand easily.
0: Now, we publish this information on our website. So both the uh, embodied carbon calculations that you guys are doing right across the practice in, in, in every team and every one of our studios. And we also put our targets and everything up on the website as well, which we've just done recently. You can go to www.pricemyers.com to have a look at those numbers. Now, I'm the communications guy in this practice. Competitive advantage is something that we're always trying to look for um, when we communicate the practice. And it strikes me that there's some competitive advantage in this information and we're just we're just kind of giving it away. You know, what's 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 the thinking behind
1: that, Ben? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So the database is something we've been building over the last three or four years. Um, everyone who works or has worked at Price and Minds over that time will know about it because we, we talk about it quite a lot. And we, we're constantly trying to remind people to do the carbon calculations to contribute to this database. So I think the way to think about it is a carbon calculation in itself is not much use if you've got nothing to compare it to. So by accumulating all our data into this big data set, we can use it for analysis and benchmarking. And it's actually become really critical in in seeing the trends and seeing how we're doing. Because if if I'm telling you that, oh, my building's achieving a value of 400 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per square meter, without something to compare that to and a, a decent data set to compare that to, the figure's essentially meaningless. So by accumulating it all, it, it gives this kind of... Um, Benchmarking, and I think when we first started doing it, there was a lot of talk around the industry about setting targets and and benchmarks, but there was no real data to back it up. There was a lot of data for um, operational side of things, but nothing really for embodied. And so we kind of made the decision to, well, let's just, let's just gather our data, build this data set, and then let's just put it on the website because no one's done this or at least no one's done this to it in any significant way. So you know, we we signed a climate declaration back in um, the autumn of 2019, and one of the pledges on it was to share information and share data. So we thought this is kind of our contribution to that, and it was really well received. Generally, we've we've had hundreds of requests probably over the last three years for people to actually get the data. So we, we published the PDF version on the website. The Excel version has to be emailed out just for technical reasons. So it's also quite a good way of logging who actually. Um, who actually is requesting it and it has gone to loads of other consultancies, engineers, architects, um, universities, and to all over the world, actually, we've sent it out to America, all over Europe, Australia, New Zealand. So it's it's been really successful. Um, this obviously, it's good from a kind of publicity point of view, there's no shame in that. It, it's good for the, the look of the firm. And I think as as the industry has tried to accumulate data, we've been one of the major contributors to that. So actually it means our data aligns with a lot of the benchmarks and we're getting quite a lot of credit in around the industry in the UK for contributing to this, like the, the, the national databases that are due to be launched later in the year.
2: But we're not just doing it because it's a good business case. You know, there is a climate emergency happening here. And so we think it's really important that we do everything we can to help that. And if one of those things is trying to better ourselves it's also about education for our engineers and trying to empower them to have the correct language to really make changes in their projects but also wider in you know really helping our collaborators understand the impacts of the decisions they're making and you know what is going into the buildings that they're buying i think that's yeah. ultimately why we do it because we we can see the big picture that there is a real problem here and we're in a really good position to be able to help that
1: Mm -hmm. there's a couple of good examples stuff that's come up recently from using the database so one of them is um you know sat in a meeting with, with the rest of the design team and they're talking about some of the decisions they're making on this building and say oh you know in this particular case it was to do with the basement Like, what if we got rid of the basement and you can open the database up on our server we can filter all the buildings those that have basements and those that don't and then look at the difference in embodied carbon as an average between those two. And now that we've got sort of almost 500 projects in there, there's a huge range of data to filter from. And so it enables us to say, actually, without the basement, we're looking at a range of this. With it, we're looking at a range of this and we can see the difference. Um, and the other one was a, a job we started doing where the planners, in the local authority, have set an embodied carbon target. And we're pretty confident that the target is no in no way ambitious and we can use our data to show you know you've set a target of this amount whereas actually we think without even trying we'll get beyond that so maybe this target isn't ambitious enough for the the client's aims on the project so you know and there's loads of things that come up i think quite regularly
0: so having that knowledge across the industry obviously helps everyone do better in that in that sense our our, our competitors for want of a better word, other other consultants in the industry sharing this information as well? Are we kind of leading the pack here or what?
1: Um, I think, well, I don't I don't know. I've not seen as many people do it as maybe they should have done. I know a lot of other consultancies are definitely collating the data. I feel like there's a bit of a, there seems to be a bit of a, a delay in people actually publishing it. Um, I'm not sure why. I think we're quite lucky here in that Charlotte and myself and the other guys that work in our kind of climate action team are given quite a good degree of autonomy to kind of make sensible decisions. And, you know, all the data that we publicize is anonymized. So we take off anything that means people can relate the project to the real life project. So there's not really a commercial sensitivity in that We, you know, we wouldn't want to publish the name of a project for a, a client to look at it and find out that, oh, this project's done really bad. It wouldn't be done here. Press it's, it's about honesty and transparency, but without kind of upsetting anyone. See what I mean? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, hopefully, other people will do it more and more. And the more data we get around an industry, the more, you know, because at the moment, because our data represents such a large percentage of the structural data in the industry, a lot of the targets and averages are based around the price and myers targets to the price, sorry, the price and myers results. And so, whilst we think we're probably doing a reasonably good job, we, if other consultancies put their data in, we might find maybe we're not and we can do a lot better because we're above the average of everyone else. But at the moment, it just means we are the
2: average. Um, we we really would encourage all of our competitors, shall we say, to um, publish the data that they have. Um, I think that it's the only way that we're really going to progress as a as an industry. We're all professionals and we all need to work together to solve this problem. I think by publishing your data, you're also encouraging people to review it and interrogate it. And together, that means that we can come up with a standardized way of measuring it, which, again, can only be useful because it will help you know, the problem that we're seeing sometimes with greenwashing and what people are including, what they're excluding. And I think it just the, the more information that we get, the better we can do as an industry. Knowledge is power. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, yeah, it's definitely it's about transparency. And you know we've we've made a we've made a graph on our website. she said we've made a claim as to what we think our reductions are. It might well be someone takes our data, manipulates it in a different way, and finds that actually the trend isn't quite what we think it is. And that's probably the case because I don't know much about stats and <laughs> I've <laughs> kind of um, presented the figures. But uh, you know it means someone else can prove us wrong, and we, we'd accept that. We're like, fine, our data's out there for someone to tell us how well we're doing if you know, we can't do it ourselves.
0: <laughs> so if you're listening in from another engineering consultancy, consider this your call to action. Um, and if you're going to publish your uh, your data, do please let us know. Um, Charlotte, uh, what are our targets and how are we doing against them? And, and you know, are the targets sufficient?
2: When we started, we set ourselves a basic aim to reduce our embodied carbon by 10% each year. We've been measuring it for the last three years and we've seen a reduction in about 13% which we think is great, but we've kind of done the easy part. We've picked off the low-hanging fruit. We've made our designs more efficient, um, and now it's kind of how we get the next steps. This is where I think we really need industry-wide, and I, by that I don't just mean the engineers and the design teams. I think we need a drastic shift in thinking. We need changes to processes, manufacturing changes, legislative Legislative changes and planning changes. Um, gosh, that's a that's a tongue teaser, isn't it? <laughs> um, the fact that I'm tripping up over my words really just goes to say how big I think you know a change needs to happen um, because we aren't going to be able to do it by ourselves. There is only so far and that we can really take our designs. We can only reduce the thickness of slabs by what gravity will allow us to do. You know, it still has to stand up at the end of the day. Um, so I think that's that's really sort of where we need the next big shift to happen. But as we see that starting to happen and as materials become more efficient, so for example, as we start to use more recycled steel, that will change the way that our embodied carbon calculations are, are sort of run and, and the numbers that we're getting. It will reduce the embodied carbon factors that we apply to our material volumes, which could sort of produce some false accounting is that the right way of explaining yeah. it so it, it might sort of make it seem like we're doing better than we really are we might still be putting in the same amount of materials into our buildings but because they're being more efficiently produced the embodied carbon will be lower so we're trying to sort of keep an eye on that knowing the big changes will need to happen and so we're we're changing the way we're doing our calcs we're in sort of using the embodied carbon calc but we're also focusing a little bit more on the actual volumes of materials we're using we're going to we're going to try and keep a better record of that so that we can see you know how how we're how we're progressing using less materials because ultimately it needs to be a two-pronged attack
1: yeah definitely i think actually the database has all that so we we it will record the embodied carbon value but it also records the material total so we can actually assess how much concrete, how much reinforcement we're using per square metre across all our buildings. And that is, again, all part of the public information. But it's essentially, that's what we have control over. But when it when it comes down to it, we can specify materials you know, as much as we want, what is actually arrives on site and where it comes from. We have relatively little control over. So it kind of makes sense for us to, yes, publish the carbon figures for comparison, but actually be really conscious of what we have control over, which is how much reinforcement we're using and what we can do to kind of reduce that
0: So it sounds as though embodied carbon isn't the sole measure for a building's environmental credentials. Is it a good
1: measure on its own? Um, In terms of the climate emergency at the moment, it's very important because this is, you know, unlike things like the operational carbon, which has made the calculations based on assumptions of the building's use over its lifetime, the embodied carbon is measurable to a reasonable level of accuracy and it is something that will be you know if, if you're designing a building that's going on site next year those emissions will accumulate over next year and we know that now is the time we need to be really really honing in and reducing these values so it is really important it's definitely not the only aspect um there's there's a lot of kind of you know a lot of misunderstanding i think about what counts as a sustainable building and but the 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 difference from, from our perspective is we're involved in the design of the building and the construction. We're not really involved in the use of the building. So from the perspective of the clients and landlords and tenants and everyone like that, it's the operational side is much more important. It's the running cost of the building, how much energy it uses. So you can see why that's really important. And schemes such as briam which is the kind of standard sustainability rating for a building, are really good on that side of things, but are still catching up when it comes to the carbon emissions from construction. Um so I mean, I haven't really asked the question,
2: have I? I think from my perspective, embodied carbon is just one aspect. When we work on a project, generally we don't just work on a building, we are looking at a project. There's so many different aspects of sustainability that you want to try and bring into that. And it's about trying to find a holistic way to make sure that what we're doing, what we're building is the right answer. If you have to build something, build it well, build it once, make it last. You can look at the external factors. How is your project doing to increase biodiversity? If your project is passive house, does that increase user comfort? Are they more likely to enjoy living, working, being in the buildings? Um, you know, good architecture. That's for, in my eyes, a big part of sustainability because, yeah, if you, if you have to build something, let's make it beautiful, make it last.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a better answer than I. <laughs> I think on just passive house is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we 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 were both working on passive house schemes at the moment, and it comes with a lot of technical challenges. And you know, what this is—it's one of these questions. It's the, the passive house buildings appear to perform really, really well in practice because they are built to a very high standard. But then, as we're doing the embodied carbon calculations, we, we, we do see a kind of trend towards the passive house buildings having quite significantly higher in body carbon than the average for a lot of the other buildings so that is a question isn't it in terms of measure of sustainability and is it you know is the hit you're taking for the carbon emissions of the construction of the building worth the kind
2: of the benefit of the building over the whole lifespan Um, I i think the question of passive house is really interesting we do lots of passive house projects the more passive house projects we do the better we get at building them so by understanding how the details needs to be developed at early stages, you can really make sure that you're picking the right structural form from the offset. Passive house doesn't need to increase the embodied carbon of a project. It doesn't need to increase the cost of a project. It can be done simply, efficiently, from a carbon and cost perspective. But what we tend to see is when it's introduced late into the design process, and key decisions have already been made, then it's really hard to pull that back and it starts to get really complicated with lots of secondary structure that is generally very high in embodied carbon um, and there's just nothing that you can do at that point to design it out because the key decisions have been made so it's either a start again from scratch with the design rethink everything or move forward and sort of shoulder the loss or the burden of the extra embodied carbon
0: <laughs> passive house though is they're projects that have made with a great deal of care and attention, are they? they? They tend to last longer, I imagine.
2: They have to go through rigorous on-site checking, and I think that is a brilliant thing. It means that somebody is there to check that all the details are built correctly. And so when you're working on projects, you know that that detail has been done as it's been designed. And in that sense, it should be lasting much longer than a conventional building because there's more checking involved.
0: That's really interesting, Charlotte. Um, you're talking about early intervention in regards to Passive House. I wonder if that's equally true across all the projects that we work on, that getting involved in the design process early is beneficial.
2: Absolutely. We've seen throughout all of our projects that the earlier we can get involved, the better the project performs. Being involved from the initial offset from Reva 1, REBA 0, means that we're involved in setting the grids, making sure that the right material is being used. And we've got our fabulous Panda tool, which really shows the results in practice. We're finding that if these things aren't set correctly from the beginning, then we're sort of trying to do too many structural gymnastics to make our projects work. And if you're really having to bend over and cantilever things and support things in really unusual circumstances, then there's going to be built in complexities and carbon involved in your projects. And the more you see those pieces of structure really struggling at the early stages, it's going to get more complicated as, as the sort of project progresses and you, as you work into the details. So we really need to find a, a holistic approach. It needs to be a structure structural form that works for all aspects of the building. So from an embodied carbon perspective, from a detailing perspective, from a client uh, architectural aesthetic, you know you need to be able to, if we're exposing the structure, it to be the right piece of structure that you're seeing. We've done this on a couple of different projects. So I'm working on a project at the moment um, at St. Edmund Hall with Wright & Wright Architects. And we spent quite a lot of time at really early stages of the project, making sure that we were looking at the right structural framing option. We ended up going with the second lowest embodied carbon option. So we had an option that would, would have performed better from embodied carbon, but that's not the key driver. We're trying to make a holistic, least sustainable building. So we ended up selecting a CLT frame. You can read more about that on our website
0: <laughs> Good plug.
2: Um, but the same thing comes when you're looking for example at tall buildings um, we're coming across lots of this at the moment where we're trying to make mass timber buildings work in unusual circumstances and we're being mm-hmm. really hit with lots of different challenges on at the moment with that so there's there's lots of detailing particularly around fire scenarios that we've got to be really careful of And you do end up adding lots more material to try and make that solution work. And there has got to be a moment in these early stages where you can take a step back and say, is this still the right answer? Is this going to make us the best building that we can we can provide? And sometimes it might not be the lowest carbon option.
0: All three of us in this room and many other people in the practice have attended conferences uh, in in recent months and years uh, with focus on sustainability and and reducing carbon, of course. Um, There is a lot of talk around at the moment and in recent weeks even about circular economy and regenerative design. See Charlotte, you're not the only one. Um, Does that mean that the embodied carbon monster has largely been tackled, Ben?
1: um in short no i don't i don't think so so no i don't think it has and i think um just for some kind of background the so circular economy relates to how materials come in and out of the material stream and how we're we, you know we're putting materials into buildings which we then need to be able to take out at the end of the building's life and it's about reuse of materials and to try and you know not have single use materials such as you know cement and concrete being the obvious offender once it's used once you can only ever break it out and down cycle it um regenerative design um (laughs) is a bit more of a kind of new new um idea and i'm not going to pretend to know as much on it as maybe i should i think there's there's other colleagues we've got who are much better versed in it but that's to do with designing something to look holistically across the whole spectrum not just about the building about the local community and about the supply chains and everything and to try and i think it's to to try and basically make what you're doing improve on everything else if that makes sense that's how i'd summarize it there's probably a much better definition of that um so yeah when we when we when this whole movement kind of started in earnest about four or five years ago with the, the, the climate declaration being signed it was all about embodied carbon and then it's moved on to circular economy and material sourcing and then now on to regenerative design and it's all very important they're all they're all kind of crucial and they all kind of linked together but it well personally as someone who's this kind of specialist in the body carbon calculations and everything, it feels like we're still very early on in that journey. And we had this kind of plan back in 2020 to reduce ourselves down to zero over sort of 30 years. And we're only sort of three or four years into that, three years into that. Um, and as Charlotte said earlier, we're seeing a reduction, but it's not as fast as any of the initial projections said it probably should have been. and I mean, it's still positive, but it, it just feels like. We still have to tackle that, and there's still a lot more that we can do. I mean, we're, whilst we're we're trying really hard, there are a lot of projects, you know, in all honesty, where we're doing basically the same that we were doing a few years ago. And it's you know a lot of it is beyond our control, but we're still pouring hundreds of thousands of square meters of concrete slabs every year as part of our designs, and it's essential. You know, we need housing, we need to build. There's often not really any better ways of doing it, so we need to try and focus on making sure we do it as best as we possibly can. But, you know, you're still, even if you design everything as well as you possibly can, you're still responsible for huge quantities of emissions.
2: So maybe that's why we're trying to look at other aspects. Yeah, yeah. There's only so far that engineers can go in reducing the embodied carbon. So we need to look at how we dismantle and reuse our materials and how our sort of buildings and projects fit into the wider society. Yeah. But moving on to... Other aspects of sustainability doesn't mean that we can forget about embodied carbon. It's really important that although we're trying to put our attention onto new and different types of ways to make our buildings better, we're not forgetting that we still need to be making our designs more efficient.
0: Do you get frustrated by the greenwashing that goes on? we, We see and read a lot of it. And again, people are always searching for competitive advantage from a commercial point
1: of view. Uh, does that sort of stick in your craw a bit? I think it is definitely much better now than it was a few years ago. I think we went we started this process in terms of talking about it with other engineering practices from a position of having studied it in depth with our work with Cambridge University and stuff over the sort of previous three or four years. So we knew a lot more about it and it was quite frustrating at the beginning hearing people talk about buildings that had been designed sustainably by means of, what is essentially false accounting by by using material factors that were maybe not quite representative of the global market? I think the knowledge has improved massively, and that's mostly thanks to work by say the iStruckD guys who have been who've been putting out loads of great information on that, and Letty and all the other organisations. So yeah, it's definitely much better. Things like the, the issues around GGBS and the use of recycled steel, I think there's a much wider understanding of what is the right approach to that. To actually, you know. Use your share of resources fairly, and not artificially lower your building's carbon value to make yourselves look good at the expense of of everyone else. Um, I think the you know the one thing that frustrates me slightly, maybe is, and we're guilty of it as well, perhaps is you do one project as an exemplar project, and you do a really good job of it, and then you're obviously going to want to publicise it and make everyone aware. Look, we've done this building; we've got an amazingly low embodied carbon value, but actually. You know, I've got 20 projects on my desk at the moment. There's one of them we're probably doing a really good job in. There's multiple others where it's business as usual, despite our best efforts for for whatever reason. And actually, I think maybe ourselves and everyone else are not doing as good a job as we could do about talking about all the barriers and all the reasons why we're not achieving what we want to do in all these other buildings. Because what our... Interestingly, sort of going into kind of technicalities, what our data shows is as we look at... Um, All the buildings that we're doing carbon calculations for our average is definitely reducing year on year if you look at it as a certain measure so if you look at it by weighting each project equally yes we're seeing a big reduction if you look at it as the total amount of floor area we're designing as a practice each year it's not quite as clear cut and without spending ages talking about that what that means is generally speaking we're thinking about on every project and every project is being designed a bit better but we still have several very large schemes out there where actually it's not as good as it could be. And in terms of the actual impact on the emissions, that is, that's bad. You know, our data this year, I think we've got one building that's the size of the next 10 below it all put together. (laughs) And that building has quite a bad value for whatever reason. And so, you know, we're releasing a lot of emissions because of that one design. And it's about tackling these, these big, you know, a 10% reduction on that building will be much better than a 30% reduction on loads of the other ones all the way down.
0: And that's one reason, I guess, why we publish all of that data because it's it's the naked truth, really, isn't yeah. it?
2: Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Yeah,
2: the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, <laughs> but greenwashing is really frustrating when it comes to people trying to sell you green products. I know it's a business, and I understand why they're doing it, but it takes quite a lot of time. And again, education from to our engineers about trying to cut through what people are trying to sell you. Um, you get lots of people trying to sell you green this or green that, and actually, when you dig deeper into it, it's it's a business as usual kind of specification that we do at Price Myers. It's just coming with a huge price tag, so we have got to be really careful about these kind of new products that are coming into the onto the market, and just making sure that what we're doing um, works best for our projects in terms of embodied carbon and costs.
1: I think also the the greenwashing goes back a step, doesn't it? It goes to conversations about wider buildings and developments and people selling developments as being sustainable because they're doing certain things, whereas they're not maybe a I'm I'm not going to name any specific Mm -hmm. high profile project examples, but it's about selling a product as sustainable because you're looking at it from one aspect and maybe not looking at, you know, embodied carbon being the obvious one that's always missed out. And I think that's really important as well.
2: Agreed.
0: Do we calculate carbon on
1: all of our projects? So we have criteria, which the engineers around the practice are meant to use, and it's essentially linked to a threshold of project fee. So every project beyond that fee, we essentially make it mandatory. And then obviously we encourage it heavily for the projects below that. And the reason why we have to have some kind of cutoff is just because there is obviously a cost involved in terms of time of doing it. And I'd say 95% of the time it is appropriate and people should do it. There are also jobs that are just so small, it's it's not actually worth doing. There's a lot of projects we have that are things like inspections or repair jobs where it's just, it's not of any real use to anyone. But it's about making people think about it. And even if they haven't done a formal calculation and submitted to the database, it should still form part of their thought process on that. It's
2: part of your day-to-day thinking, yeah. isn't it? If you're working on a small refurb job, and you manage to persuade somebody to reuse a beam in a building, you know that that is a good decision based on embodied carbon. That's based on what you know to be true. You won't do a carbon calc for that, but you still know that you're, what you've done there is good but we, we wouldn't need to do a carbon calc for it because it would be zero. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, It comes back to the earlier point about focusing your energy and in the end you know we have a finite amount of time and we have a, a large number of projects and you know yes you could do a carbon calc for that. But it for, might, the for the one beam. But it, <laughs> and maybe you should but it, if it takes time off you saving an extra one percent on your 30,000 square meter resi building the difference in that is going to be substantial compared to the difference you're making on that one. So there is a kind of decision, you know, about weighing up where the benefits are.
2: It's where you can make the biggest impact.
0: Yeah, but it's also about the mindset on the smaller projects as well and the smaller work. Agreed. Um, You've both said that we've got a long way to go to achieve our targets. Uh, You know, what else needs to happen? What are the main barriers you're finding that are stopping you from reducing the embodied carbon and your designs? I'll start with you, Charlotte, if I may.
2: Well, I think that there's quite a lot of technical issues that we're seeing. Um, I mentioned them before, but when you're looking at mass timber buildings, which we're really trying to use as much as possible because we know it's a lower carbon material than some of our more intensive materials like concrete and steel. But there are some issues that we can't get around. So it's much more difficult to meet fire requirements you often end up having to increase the thickness of your material in order to get for example fire dampers to work so you're adding in more materials in order to meet the regulations we also have nervous clients nervous insurance companies and so it's really trying to get them involved as early as possible bring them along on the journey with you and make sure that they're understanding that we're de-risking this as much as we possibly can Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one side. it isn't. You
1: timber isn't it because we're uh, you know, almost every project that comes in where it's appropriate, we'll try and push to use timber, and we're getting you know, we're getting fightbacks on all sides of insurance. Water is another one. I water, think, yeah. That, you know, whether that's from water from firefighting damage or from exposure on site or you know poor waterproofing details, there's all sorts of other issues. It's just it's it's frustrating because you look at examples around the world, and a lot of other countries seem to. You know, Australia seem to be really good at now building in timber, Canada, and Canada, and loads of Europe, and we seem to be behind the curve for various reasons, just sort of nervousness. And you know, people have been building with timber for thousands of years, and it's never really been a problem because There's, it can
2: mm, be done well. You mm. can make a timber a timber building perform really well. It can meet the requirements that we need from our buildings. We just have to make sure that it's detailed and designed correctly. Mm. But at the moment, our Legislation won't let us do that. It won't let us build tall buildings out of mass timber. It just comes with far too many challenges about trying to protect it and look after it. It becomes unfeasible in terms of how much additional protection you're having to give it in those fire circumstances.
1: I think it's it's client expectation as well, isn't it? Because you're you're working with clients, usually ones that do multiple buildings. You know, they have a large portfolio and they want their building to be done in a certain way. And I think especially for timber, but also for trying to design something as lower embodied carbon, you have to kind of change that mindset. And so that's why we've been using this philosophy of trying to challenge the brief. And you know, we've been saying that a lot with the Panda tool, but just generally. And and some of us are better at it than others. It, it comes down to confidence a lot of the time and, and being able to. Stand up at the early part of the project and tell the client actually maybe we should be doing it this way and on successful projects you can end up with you know buildings where you've got five or six meter grids which otherwise might have been built with eight or nine meter grids and that's a huge saving in body carbon right from the outset but it's about you know making the making it clear to the client and the architect and the rest of the team that if if embodied carbon is your goal and you want to minimize it or you want to use structural timber then your building is not gonna look the same as it might have done if you hadn't. But you just have to kind of embrace it and integrate it into your design from day one and just kind of, you know, go with the flow from there, if you see what I mean, rather than trying to do a building in a different way, but f- force it to kind of meet your expectations for a traditional concrete or steel building.
2: Yeah, look, if we're if we're trying to find drastic changes, we can't just go with the business as usual model. We need something really different to happen, needs to come from all different angles. So there needs to be change to the legislation. What about planning?
1: Yeah, planning planning is a problem. I think from a personal point of view, having embodied carbon targets written into planning conditions would be probably the single biggest step that could happen because it's then enforced. And we're seeing it filtered through slowly through some of the more progressive Local authorities we're working on, um, without naming them, some are doing much better jobs than others. Some are still very much business as usual, but that is slowly starting to happen. But it needs to happen a lot faster. But there's other aspects as well, and there's things things that catch you out as engineers, such as arbitrary limits on building height. A lot of it is technical for sort of fire reasons. But as an example, any building over 30 meters in London has to get referred to the GLA, which involves a huge extra cost and everything. So you end up artificially forcing your buildings into a 30-meter zone, which often, if you're trying to get, say, seven stories in that building, means you are really squeezing your story. So going into technical detail, but it's a it's a really good example because the more you squeeze the allowable space for structure, the less efficient it can be. And you know, it essentially when Charlotte and I and our engineers are doing these designs, you're really restricted by laws of physics. There's only so much you can do before your structure becomes really inefficient. And so things like arbitrary depth rather than say a maximum number of stories or sort of slight tweaks to to wording and rules could actually make quite a large difference into how our buildings will perform.
2: Yeah, when you set a limit on your building height, where does the bike storage go? It often ends up having to be put in a basement. Now we know that we want to encourage everybody to cycle. We at Price and Myers very much enjoy cycling as a hobby. Um, Most of us. (laughs) Most of us. But is it the right answer to throw so much embodied carbon into our basement in order to provide bike storage. Is that counterintuitive? Is that the right answer? I think these kind of big mm. questions need to be answered. It needs to be taken as a sort of a, a stepped back, a mm. holistic review of what we're trying to do with our planning rules.
0: So we are signatories to the structural engineers declare statement. We did that about four years ago, uh, made that declaration signed on in all honesty. This is a question for both of you. How are we going as a practice uh, against those elements of the declaration that we agreed to abide by? And how do you think the wider industry is going as well?
1: It's a tough one. I think I've just got the list in front of me. I printed it off this morning. The 11 aims that we signed up to in um, October, November 2019. So without going through each one and going through it in detail, I think there are some of them, you know, number four, share knowledge and research. I think we've done a very good job on that. I'd like to think we're one of the leaders. Other firms obviously doing really well in sharing other aspects. For us, it's the embodied carbon data. Um, The rest of them, there's ones where we're definitely, you know, doing what we can. We collaborate. We're definitely doing that really well, trying to accelerate the shift. We're doing as much as we can. There's definitely more that we could do. i'm not going to stand here and pretend that we've solved it or that we've done it all i think we're only a small percentage of the way through but i think we're you know we've as a kind of group of us we've essentially in the space of what four years and during you know really tricky times with the, with the pandemic and everything as well we've managed to essentially integrate an entire new section into our workflow and when you think how how like slow moving and conservative that construction industry generally is, to do that is quite an achievement. We've anyway, been
2: doing some yeah. calculations the same way mm. for hundreds of mm. years. All of a sudden, we've got this new calculation that we do on almost all projects. That's amazing. That's something that we didn't have four years yeah. ago. It's changing the way that we're thinking about projects. It's changing the way that we're looking at details. It's, mm. it's changed everything that we do, really. And so I think in that sense, we've done a really good job, but I think there's still much further that we need to push this yeah and i think that we how we sort of will move this forward is trying to expand our knowledge as a as a company so that then we can give that and sort of you know reflect outwards to try and bring everybody up to the same level of knowledge that we've got because it's it's only through collaboration and design changes with our architects and our services engineers and our clients and our planners and our insurers (laughs) we need everybody to get involved um if if we're really going to make a change it's it's not just a a structural engineers declare moment this is a climate emergency and we need industry-wide action Mm. if we're really going to see progressive change
1: yeah i think that sums most of it up i mean the other thing we need is is more time and it seems silly saying that when you're in the face of an emergency but the, the scale of a lot of the projects we work on, you know, the, the, it's only now just starting to filter through to see the results. As we started thinking about projects in a different way in, in 2019, 2020, those projects will only now just have been built. And so it will take more time for that to sort of filter through. So I'm hoping that as the data is developed over the next couple of years, we will start to see hopefully more of a trend downwards, which will be really positive. Human beings tend to be either
0: optimistic or pessimistic, putting aside your own natural bent. Is there cause for optimism when we talk about this subject?
2: Yes, absolutely. The amount of engagement that we get when we talk about embodied carbon and sustainability in the construction industry, I think gives us hope that this is something that we will be seeing more and more often. And as more people are engaged in it, the more change we're likely to see.
1: I think yeah, definitely. And I, I think one of the more the most positive things is when you look at the trend for engineers as they come kind of into the system, like out of university. There's so much. you know, I, I covered sustainability briefly at university back in <clears throat> whenever whenever <laughs> it was I graduated. Um, but the the graduates coming in now are really clued in it and very enthusiastic, and actually far more so than a lot of the older members of staff in terms of doing it. So I think that's a really clear sign that it's just going to become. You know, it, it's going to become well. It has become the norm now, hasn't it? But it's going to become more and more ingrained, as it. You know, because for the, young, the younger you are, essentially, the more you, the more you need to worry about this. So it, it's it's yeah, it's a good thing.
2: They're hungry for change, and I love yeah. it. I love seeing it in the younger engineers that we've got at Price and Myers. They really want to make their buildings better, and it, having that knowledge and sort of grounding in, in university, where they're they're talking about. sustainability in their course. I think it's fantastic. Like Ben says, it's not something that we covered. And you can see engineers coming in and really questioning why we're doing things in certain ways. And that is part of what we're doing as, as signatories of the Climate Emergency Action Plan, because we're trying to educate everybody and we're trying to empower our younger engineers and sort of give them the correct language so that they can persuade people in projects that they're working with to make the right decision. It's just trying to sort of bring that out of them uh, and make sure that everybody knows it's it's in their hands and you know, they they can be the change they want to see. (laughs) Gosh, that's cheesy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Confident but not complacent. I like it. I feel better already, I can assure you. Um, On our website, as I mentioned earlier, www.pricemires.com, you can find uh, the embodied carbon data that both of our speakers have been talking about. Uh, And you can also see our targets and our uh, performance against those over the course of the last three or four years. I'd like to thank both Charlotte and Ben for joining me in our little podcast hub down here in London uh, for your insight and your expertise and your uh, optimism. Actually, it's really, really lovely. And good chat. Good chat. Mm -hmm. So thank you both very much for joining me. Let's do this particular subject again in, mm, I don't know, about 12 months' time. What do you think? It's a deal. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks, Chris. Cheers, Chris.